The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, guys. Good morning. Let's go back to our seats. open your your copy of God's word to Psalm 147 Psalm 147 if you don't have a Bible with you you're welcome to use the one on the seats provided for you and if you don't want to ha- if you don't have one at home you can keep that one as well Psalm 147 this is the second to last psalm in our series this summer um, where we've we've taken time we've, we've finished um, the the epistles that we were in, we're spending some time in, in what's called wisdom literature, and I, and I trust that as we've studied this, you've seen the power and the wisdom of God's Word and how we can approach and learn to worship and love God with, with all of our hearts and souls and minds. The Psalms are rich in their theology, rich in their expression of worship, rich in, in guiding and teaching our own emotive responses to our, our life and our situations, and ultimately to help us see more clearly God's hand and purposes behind our circumstances that would otherwise be unnoticed. Um, so the Psalms are so rich, and I, and I trust and, and pray that you've been helped and encouraged by our, our series this summer. So we'll finish next week. And then if you'd like to begin to read the, the, the book of Galatians, Paul letter to the, to the church of Galatians, in Galatians, that uh, would be a helpful way to begin that. We'll have our outdoor service, and then we'll begin Galatians in September after that. So feel free to begin to read ahead in that book. But uh, let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray, God, begin to calm our hearts and focus our minds' attention on hearing from you. Though I am but a man, Lord, I stand upon and behind your word. So God, would you speak and would your word go forth? And would it accomplish its purposes? Would you teach and encourage and inspire and rebuke and confront and lead and expose and uh, give the gospel and our souls what we need? Father, help us to see clearly what it is you'd have us do and obey from your word this morning. As always, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a bit of a confession to make. I'm a terrible multitasker. And I mean like terrible. I, I just can't, I can't do it. I've tried. Uh, it would be a helpful task to have, but I, I think from what I understand that science has t- taught us is that actually most of us are terrible multitaskers. Uh, some of us can do some things at the same time, but none of us can do many things well at the same time. And if there's anything I've learned from my attempts at multitasking, it is that it is very difficult to do one thing well, let alone try to do two or more. And yet, this is, this is who our Lord is. One of the fundamental differences between us and God is that we are limited by our ability to multitask, and God is not. Now, I don't you want you to simply think of God as like the ultimate multitasker, because that would really try to craft God into an image and a mind like ours, 
who can juggle many things without breaking a sweat. And that may be a, a helpful or an apt analogy, but at the end of the day, God is not necessarily juggling things. He's not multitasking. There's not plates he's spinning or things in the air. So even then, the analogy begins to break down. But what we'll see in a second when we read Psalm 147 is that God has infinite power and infinite wisdom to bring about, to ordain and orchestrate and sustain all things in the universe without fear of failure, without neglect, without a drop of, of hesitation. The Lord is effective in all that He does, and His power in sustaining work is exhaustive in the sense that every action in our universe owes its existence to the Lord. We know that God brings about all things. To give an example of this, we pray every Sunday at the end of our service the Lord's Prayer. And one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer is to give us this day our daily bread. We're, at, we're, we're petitioning the Lord ultimately to provide for us what we need. And it's, it's right that we pray to the Lord that He provides our daily bread. Let's just take meal for a literal example. When we give thanks to God, we thank Him for the meal. But why do we not thank the hand that prepared it? Or the farmer who grew it? Or the driver who drove it from the farm to the mill? And from the mill to the baker? And to the baker to the grocery store? Why do we not thank the auto manufacturers who designed our vehicles that we could drive to the store to buy the bread? Or why do we not thank our employers for providing us with a job so we can have money to go and pay for the food and the meal that we eat? Why do we not thank our family for providing and cooking all day for us? Why do we not thank our grandmother for teaching our mother that recipe that we enjoy? Why do we not thank other people? Why are we directed in the Lord's Prayer to thank God for this? Because God ultimately is responsible. This is what I mean. God is able to bring about every act in the universe that comes to pass. It is all owing its existence and its passing to the Lord's work. We speak broadly of God's sovereignty and that He has the authority and the power to do all that He pleases. But here, we're referring to what's called His providence, the ability to act sovereignly to bring about His purposes. If His purpose is to sustain us with food, He has acted purposefully in creation, sovereignly in creation, to produce the situation in which the bread ends up at your table and you consume it. Not least, of providing you with life that you may eat in the first place. To try to enumerate all the many things that go into one single meal and one bite of one meal is an infinite list, all of which is dependent upon God for its execution. This is what I mean when I say God is far greater in his ability to do and accomplish what we feel we can do. On a scale, we hardly can do two things at once, let alone one thing well. God does all things at all times perfectly. Psalm 147 is, an, is a celebration of this God who is able to provide and protect and nurture and keep and sustain because of who he is his power, of an infinite wisdom. 
And so our goal really this morning is simply just to see that, to celebrate in awe of this God and to worship Him. Let's read Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem and gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds. He determines the number of the stars, and He gives to all of them their names. Great is our God, and abundant in power is His understanding beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Let's sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of men, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out His command to the earth, and His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before His cold? Then he sends out his word, and he melts them. He makes his wind blow, and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. Has he not dealt thus with any other? He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We could see for one forty-seven this picture of a sovereign. God, who acts purposefully in creation. Notice just firstly the the structure of the psalm. This will help us in our own division as we study it. It's divided into three parts that we see beginning with calls to praise. In verse 1, praise the Lord. This is the Hebrew word hallelujah when we sing. It is the hallel, the, the praise, the worship of God. It's a command, an imperative Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. That is, how good it is. It is fitting to sing a song of praise. I mean, it is right and beautiful to acknowledge God. So there's a call to praise God. In verse 1 and in verse 7, the second section, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God on the lyre. A call to praise. And again in verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, and praise your God, O Zion. So these calls to praise, these commands to worship and give thanks to God, help us divide the text up. And we'll see that in between these sections are the reasons why we should praise God, the the rationale for the call and the command to praise. Each of these sections, they detail God's power in creation, in and over creation. But more than that, it's celebrating that God's power is particularly invested in the good of and to the aid of His people. This is not simply a a broad view of how good God is and what He does in the world, but how He bends His power and sovereignty and acts providentially within creation for the good of His people. 
Christians, those who are united to Christ by faith, receives the benefit of God's purposeful actions of sovereign work in the world. We are the beneficiaries of God's providence in which He brings all courses of events throughout all of history under His sovereignty. Every molecule and act and step of man works to the sovereign purposes of God for the benefit of His people and to the praise of His glory. And so it details God's power in and over creation, but more than this, it's celebrating a particular kind of devotion, a particular kind of love God has for His people. Just notice the contrast there as well at the end of those sections. There in verse 6, it says, The Lord lifts up the humble, and He casts down the wicked to the ground. There's a contrast between God's particular love and steadfast devotion through His providence and those to whom he will receive judgment. Again, there's a contrast in verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, that is, the warrior, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love, those who recognize him as strong, mighty, powerful, sovereign, providential in all creation. The contrast as well in verse 19. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel, he has not dealt thus with any other nation. So Jacob, or, or Israel, is unique among all the nations. All these other nations do not have the blessing of God's providences that led ultimately to the revelation, the oracles, the statutes of His Word, by which they ultimately received their blessing. And so God's purposes, we see from Psalm 147, God's working sovereignly in the world is to so arrange all the events in every human action for His purposes that benefit His people for the praise of His glory. This is the kind of God we serve. And so Psalm 147 teaches us why it is right to praise God. It teaches us why it is right to praise God. We can affirm that it is good. We can affirm that it is right. But it's helpful, as Psalm 147 tells us, to remind ourselves why it is good. The nature of that goodness. What God has done to deserve our praise and our worship. And it does this through its celebration of the kind and the gracious providences of a good and powerful God. Not simply over His creation, but for the good of His chosen people. And so from exploring each of these three sections, we're going to observe several features of God's character that are related to us as His people through His providence. We'll observe several features of God's character that are related to us through His providence. Now, I realize I've said the word providence several times, and I want to give you a couple working definitions to help you understand what I mean by that, in case you haven't caught on quite yet. Providence, Gerald Bray, who's a theologian, in his book on providence defines it this way, that providence is the governing power of God that oversees His creation and works out His plans for it. The governing power of God. Now, it's different from sovereignty. When we say God is sovereign, He has the authority and the power to do all that He wants. He is completely unlike any other in His ability to do what He wants. Providence is the purposeful working out of that sovereignty in creation. Or as Gerald Bray puts it, the governing power of God that oversees His creation and works out His plans for it. What providence teaches us then, this is why theology is so important, 
is that God didn't just create the world and then leave it on its own. That he is actively governing the universe. He is actively bringing about things within creation which necessitate his involvement in it. Or Paul Helm, another theologian in the Providence of God, the Contours of Christian Theology series, which I recommend to anyone, says that the providence of God is a rather formal way of referring to the fact that God provides. I think that's a simple definition. The providence of God, as a phrase, is a rather formal way of referring to the fact that God provides. And now we see how theology, this, this beautiful picture of God's sovereign work of providentially caring for creation, is relevant to all of our lives. That God is actively providing the means by which the whole universe is held together. The food before you that you eat, the very life and breath in your lungs, all things here are provided by God. The sun that the, that the, that the trees need to survive, the the water that the world needs to continue to live, the food that sustains humanity, all of these are provided by God, down to the smallest molecule, down to the smallest detail. So when we say the providence of God, we mean it is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the fulfilling of His purposes in creation for, for our good and His glory. It is God's providing in His creation. There's many ways in which we see God's providence work out, and we have no time to develop any robust theology of any of them. But what I want to do is look at these facets or these features of God's character that are related to us through His providence. As we see God caring for His people, caring for His creation, we have a unique face that we can see and praise God for. The first of these are in that first section, verses 1 through 6 the builder and the healer. Through his providence, we see that God is the builder and the healer of his people. Notice all of the actions there in this section. The Lord, verse 2, builds up Jerusalem. He gathers, he heals, and he binds up. He determines and names the stars. He lifts up the humble and casts the wicked. The emphasis here is not on the believer. The emphasis is not even on the actions themselves. It is on the one who is doing the acting. He is the one who is bringing about all of these things necessary for God's people to live and survive and to have hope and joy and satisfaction. God is the one who builds. He is the one who gathers. He is the one who will heal. He is the one who builds and binds together. He is the one who determines and names the stars. He is the one who will exalt the humble and humble the proud. God is the one who acts because God is the one who is powerfully creative, sustaining. He is the builder and the healer. There is great delight and comfort. The psalm wants us to, to take in the fact that God is working within creation for the good of his people. Isaiah 40 captures this idea well. I think the psalmist even thinks about this here. Isaiah 40, verse 28 and 29 says, Have you not known or have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is 
unsearchable. We can see here how God sustains and creates in verse 5, whose power is abundant, whose understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah goes on. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. This following verses, we see that he lifts on eagles' wings those who wait upon the Lord. So this God, Isaiah says, is a powerful, everlasting God whose wisdom and understanding is unsearchable. And the psalmist here echoes that same sentiment, that great is our God, abundant in power, whose understanding is beyond all measure. He is able to orchestrate all things for the good of His people. When we consider God's providence, we see that He is working within creation to build and to heal the brokenhearted, those who are distraught and discouraged. Those who are wounded are binded and cared for. The humble is lifted while the wicked are cast to the ground. Such a God stands above all the others and He works providentially for the purpose of His glory to sustain and provide for His people. He is building and healing a people for Himself. Now, the context of this psalm is likely a post-exilic, meaning it's speaking of those who have come out of exile back into Jerusalem and seeks God's help in the rebuilding of a once great and powerful city, Jerusalem. The hope there, then, is not in the strength of any one person or the laying of bricks or the establishing of a new city, but in God who Himself will do the building. As we thank God for the daily bread and not any number of people who have had their hands in that process, so the psalm tells us to praise God for the building of His people, even if there are many men and women who have led us to understand and appreciate and love God for who He is. It is to God and God alone because He is the builder. He is the sustainer and the healer of His church. Two truths from this section. First, that God cares. This is a powerful, comforting truth from Psalm. God cares. He is not so far off as architect that he is unconcerned with the smaller details of the building of his people. He is not so far off as a judge or as warrior that he is not intent on building up and sustaining his people, healing them, caring for them, nurturing them back to health. He cares for his people. He is the one who has hung the stars in place. He determines and gives them their names, and yet he is the one who bows down from heaven to serve and care for his people. One who marshals the hosts of the stars, calling them by his name, by their name, is more than equal to the problems that we face in our life. Both in power and understanding, he is beyond all our problems. It turns upside down the familiar argument that in so great a universe as ours, our small affairs are too minute for him to notice. No, God cares. We see also that he is committed to the care of his people. Not only does he care, but he is committed to acting in caring kindness. So God cares, but secondly, God acts. It is not enough to simply know and hear our prayers, but God delights in answering them. He intervenes within creation. He so orders and orchestrates all things to bring about the answers of prayers. He has, friends, remember, always been acting. If you try to map out linearly 
how you came to faith, you would have to track all the way back to creation and then before. All that has come into your life at the hand of the Lord has been a plan in action in the mind of God before time began. God has always been acting. He has always been involved in His creation, near, caring for, sustaining, and healing, building His people. There has not been one moment where God's plans neglected the building and the healing of His people. He has always been acting. We will not know tens of thousands of ways that God is acting, but we can know, you know one or two and praise God for them. He has always been acting, and He is acting even now though you may not see it. No, friends, that God even now is building His people. He's building you into His kingdom. He has not grown weary. He does not faint, Isaiah says, or grow weary. But he who does not faint or grow weary gives power to those who are faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is what God does. In His inexhaustible love and strength and glory, He He gives and energizes the weak. He could simply exist, create the world, and leave it on its own. But in His caring kindness, in His providence, He has entered into creation so that He may uphold it and build it. This is our God, the builder and healer of His people. So let's be careful not to make God into our own personal genie by assuming He will do anything we ask. But let us also remember that God is indeed acting in creation to establish His purposes for your life. That it is not inappropriate to pray that God would act on your behalf. That God would heal you in times of desperate sickness or in trouble. That God would would move in your life to provide in certain ways. This is the kind of God we see in Scripture. He is the builder of His people. Later in the New Testament, we know Jesus will speak to his disciples and says that he will take on himself the responsibility of building his church. So friends, you and I are not responsible for the size and influence of foundation or not responsible for whether or not the church succeeds in the culture wars or defeats every enemy at its gates. Christ himself has taken on that responsibility to establish and to build his church. Our job as Christians is to simply Love and obey, and let God build. He is the architect of the church. He is building His people. He is healing us, and He's sustaining us who come to Him. So that's the first two features we see, God as builder and healer. The second, in the next section, verses 7 through 11, is that God is sustainer and provider. God in His providence reveals Himself as sustainer and provider. Again, another call to praise there in verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. There's a reason to praise. Why? Verses 8 through 11. He covers the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. For his delight is not in the strength of the horse, the pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. So God's providence here is formally established. It's, it's unfolded. We see his actual work within creation. This creation, by the way, which affects all, not simply his people. 
The beasts of the field are not Christians. The ravens are not Christians. The nations who receive the rain that waters the hill, they may not be Christians, and yet God in His common grace gives all of these things. God's providence over all of creation is established, but we'll see that it is uniquely bent to the good of His people. In fact, what we see just in a few short verses is that the entire ecological chain of life and production, even existence itself, is all sustained and upheld by God. That the rain that falls and the grass that grows and the animals that feed and the animals on which we feed all come from the Lord's hand. He does it all. Hebrews 1 verse 3 Christ is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So God in Christ is not only sustaining the universe by keeping it in existence continually, but is actually providing the means by which it is existing itself. The water cycle is the Lord's idea. All of this is a beautiful picture of God's providence and grace. And notice that this grace is indiscriminate in verse 9. It's the, from the large and capable cattle, the beasts of the field, all the way to the small and helpless, like these young ravens, these small birds which cry. God is not concerned about who is deserving of grace. It would not be grace if He conditioned it upon any deserving quality. Even in His common grace, He gives rain to the just and the unjust. He allows these things to produce for the wicked and the righteous. He is capable of providing for the large and the strong, as well as for the small and the helpless. But this does not mean that the object of God's delight are those who are naturally strong, impressive. In fact, the object of God's delight are not those naturally intuitive to what I would refer to as the Darwinian mind, who embrace the idea that only the fittest survive. That in order to survive, you must be strong, ruthless, willing to take what you need. Let the weak and the helpless fade away. That's how we survive. This is not simply Darwinism in the ecological sphere, but there is a form of social Darwinism. That where people look to one another and dismiss those who may be weak or helpless. And strength is necessary for the survival of a culture, a people, a clan, or a family. But God does not delight in what is naturally intuitive to such minds. Rather, look in verse 10. It says that only those who will survive are those who rely not on their own strength, but rather, in verse 11, those who in humility rely on God's steadfast love. So now we see how the, the work of God's universal providence over creation and His common grace over all people and all nations now are uniquely fitted to the good of those who are particularly called by Him. It is not those who are strong in their own mind, but those who fear God and hope in His steadfast love, those who are in union with God in Christ because they have trusting God for His provision. They are the ones who provide. They know not from their own strength can they bring about what they need to survive. If for a moment they may toil with some productivity, they know at the end of the day their strength will fail. They need God for true survival. And so they rely on God's steadfast love. Psalm 121, 
says this similarly, I lift my eyes to the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the knowledge of God's creative and sustaining power should both humble us before God and give us confidence that He is truly the best candidate for the job. Our limitedness, our finiteness cannot provide for us and for the world what it so desperately needs. We must recognize that at a certain point, all human ingenuity fails. No matter what the the best and the brightest of humanity comes up with, we will never be able to sustain the universe. We will never be able to keep the sun from destroying us in the future, or a tidal wave from coming upon land, or for cancer to continue to ravage. These things are in the Lord's hands. And though He may use many means and many common graces to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, to provide for us, it is God alone which can uphold the universe by the word of His power. So we may like to think that we have control, but this is a fool's errand. He alone is wise. He alone is powerful enough to keep us, to truly keep us in the world together. So the Lord is sustainer and provider. Lastly, in the last few verses, verses 12 through 20, the features of God's providence are seen as protector and the sender. He is the protector and the sender. In verses 13 through 14, we see that God gives and provides shalom. Provides shalom. It says that He strengthens the bars of your grace and He blesses the children within you. He makes peace, that's the word shalom, in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. There's a provision by God on behalf of His unique people, called and covenanted with Him by grace. In a previous psalm, we talked about the word shalom. This is that ideal that that God is prospering His people holistically, not simply in terms of monetarily, not simply in terms of peace, but in all fabric and areas of life, holistically, there is a wellness and a harmony that is brought into existence in the life of those who experience shalom. There is an abounding goodness that is felt and experienced in all of life. That's what shalom is. And so we use many words to describe it. Prosperity, peace, blessing, harmony, wellness. It's all brought into this idea of shalom. And so God provides by protecting. He gives protection in the form of peace by defeating His enemies. He provides the the work necessary so that those who may toil may eat of what they have deserved. He brings and fills those who need food and sustenance. But He also sends. Notice in verses 15 through 18, He sends out His transformative word. 15 says that He sends out His command to the earth and His word runs swiftly. And in the end of verse 18, He sends out His word and melts them, makes his wind blow and the waters flow. So what the word is able to do as it goes out from God is carry with it the ability to do what God has intended and purposed it to do. Three things about the word then. The word of the Lord that goes forth is missional. It is sent from God. It is a purposeful sending of his word to bring about his purposes. 
He is not simply speaking into a vacuum, but he sends his words, his commands, and his testimonies to his people for a particular purpose. His word is missional. Secondly, his word is authoritative. It has the ability, the authority to govern and to command. His word has the ability to create. He speaks in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis with his word all things into existence. He brings in Ezekiel the valley of dry bones to life through the preaching of his word. Here we see in Psalm 147 that he can send his word and snow will fall, frost like ashes, ice crystals like ice crumbs are sprinkled, a frigid cold that none could stand before and with his word, all of that could be melted into a warm summer breeze and the flowing of a river that nourishes his people. His word is authoritative, which can govern and command. And third, his word is powerful in that it can transform. The true work and effect of his word is that those who hear it and receive it are changed by it. Not only are the the seasons held and transformed by his word as God upholds the universe, but those who come into contact with his word as it goes to his people are redeemed and transformed by it. This is the word of the Lord that comes out, purposefully changing to redeem his people. So God as protector and sender not only gives life-giving shalom and sends his transformative word, but then he communicates a particular love. There in just the last two verses, he declares his word, which was sent, which brings peace to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. For He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The end of this is really a a command, again, to praise God, a, a hallelujah, to praise God because it is right to praise Him for His Word because of His special grace and provision for His covenant people. What the Psalms have helped us do is see that God has a a common grace, a providence that governs all of the world, but that in His covenant with His people, He bends all the work of God's sovereignty, all of His special purposes to work for His people. And that is a particular kind of love. It is the strength and the omnipotence and the sovereignty of a creator God that works for his people and for his glory. And so it's right to praise God, the psalmist says, because of his special grace and provision for his covenant and his covenant people. In other words, we praise God for the privileged and the gracious way that he deals with us in Christ. This is the true word sent from heaven. This is the true word which was missional in its, in its intent. This is the true word which comes with authority to command and govern. This is the true word which speaks and accomplishes and transforms according to his work. Christ transforms us. And so we have and celebrate a privileged grace as Christians. He made us to know Him. And we know Him by His Word, sent to us and preserved in Scripture and embodied perfectly and fully in Christ. And now He leads us and cares for us even now. He is not far off, but in the sending of His Word, He also has given us His Spirit. This is, I think, what the psalmist is really getting at when he says that He makes the wind blow and the waters flow that there was something unique in the way that God cares for his people, that he provides and preserves them in his grace. So there is a particular love. 
So Christians, your, your job this morning in response to Psalm 147 is simply to praise God. The two commands in the front and in the end of the psalm is to praise God, to, to praise God with your hallelujahs. It is to be thankful, to sing, to dance, to praise, to be filled with wonders, to recount all the many ways that God has blessed you. It's a helpful experience at the dinner table to give thanks for how God has delivered what you're about to eat by the hands of those who cooked it, grew it, sustained it, but ultimately to God who ordains it. So friends, give praise to God for His particular love. If you're not a Christian this morning, and you say, I don't think I'm a recipient of that particular kind of love. I know God has blessed me. I, I know that He has done all of this in creation. I know that He's working. I know that He's upholding. But I don't think I'm a recipient of the particular blessing here that you speak of in Christ. Then your response to 147 is simply to ask for it. That's simply all you need to do. All who seek God will be found by Him. All who ask for the Lord and call upon the name of Christ will be saved. God offers to you the unique blessing and the particular love in Christ. There is no special formula. There is no magic trick. You who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're hearing this and you're wondering if God has given you this special and particular kind of grace, call upon the name of the Lord and have and receive an assurance that God does love you in a unique and particular way that all of the graces and the sovereignty and the providence in which He upholds all things are now serving for the purpose of your salvation and your blessing. This doesn't mean that you'll prosper in this world. It doesn't mean that you'll have everything you ever wanted. What it means is you will have true joy and satisfaction no matter your circumstances. And so let us say with the psalmist that we should praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to God. And there is a pleasure of singing songs that are true to the beauty and the glory of Christ, who is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help to obey this command to praise you. We'd like to think that we are able to do it, but our hearts are often prone to wander, to half-heartedly praise, because truly we reserve credit for ourselves. There are so many things in your providence that you have allowed to happen and occur by these secondary means. Our hands are indeed all over the plow, but it is you who causes it to grow. It is you who builds your kingdom. And so help us, Lord, to remind ourselves regularly by your word and by the fellowship of this church to sing praises to you for who you are, the builder and the healer of your people, the sustainer of your people, the provider of your people, the protector of your people and the sender of your word who is Christ who has come to us as the perfect radiance of your glory the fullness of deity in which was pleased to dwell you have come to us you have made yourself known and so we as Christians are uniquely blessed among all others help us to revel and to glorify you for this unique blessing and heritage God, I pray for those who do not share in this heritage and blessing, that they would be counted among the saints. They would even now reach out and grab hold of the offer of salvation that you give to them, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. 
and that then they would worship you for all that you've done in your universal providences and in your special grace to your people. For you love us, care for us, and act among us for your good, your glory, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.